Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Imam Mohammed Majid is the imam and executive director of the All Dulles Area Muslim Society Center, known as the Adams Center for short, which serves 5,000 Muslim families based in Northern Virginia. This makes him one of the most important imams in America. He is also a member of the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council convened by AJC and the Islamic Society of North America to create and advance a joint Muslim Jewish advocacy agenda. Imam Majid joined us this week at AJC's Learner Media Center in New York City to discuss Islam in America and the state of Muslim-Jewish relations. Imam Majid, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, some of our listeners will be familiar with synagogue life, and they may know a rabbi or two. What is the day-to-day life of an imam serving a congregation like yours at the Adams Center look like? Yes, uh, the role of the imam in America is unique from the imam overseas in a Muslim country. Because the imam in the United States is the imam, did the prayer, he is the counselor, the counseling, he's the interfaith person, speaking to people of other faith, have relationship with rabbi, pastors, and ministers. He's a person that might find himself speaking to the media, have government relationship, like like a Superman. <laughs> I was going to say that that's that's it. That's all you have to yeah, do. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, you can in one day, your day can go from leading the prayer in the morning, visiting the sick in the hospital, attending a meeting with the White House, and then doing the faith events, and then teaching a class in the evening. That could be the day. <laughs> that's how it looked like. Um, therefore, the Imam in America have various um, responsibility and uh, wearing many hats, because we wear hats, actually. The imams, <laughs> we wear many hats. Um, therefore, it's, uh, it's the, the role of the imam look like a rabbi, look like a pastor who's very active in the church, mm-hmm. uh, neighborhood church. Different from the imam that lead the prayer in a Muslim country, say in Sudan or Saudi Arabia and so forth. Like, the imam being considered in America a community leader. For my personal life, every day has all of these things on it. Uh, while I'm leaving the hospital, I receive a call from a journalist who wants to know about Islam or the event took place in Sri Lanka or you know, tragedy in California and so forth. What's my reaction and what I think you know, about this kind of um, uh, rhetoric and hate and so forth. For I have to give input in uh, current events as well as taking care of the community members. Right. So how much of your time is spent kind of tending to your flock versus dealing with external relations, kind of things like that? You know, I, I, I do like about 20 hours of counseling wow. a week. Some of them on the phone. But also I work about maybe 80 hours a week, Mm -hmm. you know? You could be an investment banker. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, in relationship with the community, it's very difficult to say no because some people come to you and uh, and they are in tremendous need. 
spiritual, emotional. Uh, somebody just lost their loved one. Somebody called you at middle of the night that says, okay, I have to make a decision whether to take the life support of my father and, and my mother or should await and what should I do? I've been pressured to take the life support um, off from, from my mother or my father. And therefore, you have to be able to address this issue. Sometimes you get up from your bed and you go and visit the hospital because of the situation that require uh, you to be there. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one of the interesting things that my colleague now, not only imams, therefore I have many friends or rabbis. I call, for example, maybe Rabbi Lustig or Hosman or Rabbi Noshensack in Ohio just to take their opinion, their input in a decision about to make in a political issue. Mm -hmm. As well, I call the imams and so forth. But my colleague now is the, all the uh, religious leader that I trust. And therefore, my support system, I mean, it is not only from the imams, but also from other religious leaders because we have similarity. We work together in same issues. Mm -hmm. Now, you came to America from Sudan yes. in the late 80s, is yes, that right? Yes, yes. So, so in, in the decades that you've been here, that you've been a part of the American Muslim community, what are the great successes that American Muslims are most proud of in the years that you've been here? I think one of the most important aspects of the um, American Muslim community in terms of success is the integrations that have taken place in all levels. Mm -hmm. You have Muslims who are running for office now all over the United States, and you have now three Congress women and a man in, in member of Congress. You have many young professionals all over the United States working in different fields. You know, you have the, I would call the, uh, the awareness of the second generations of the importance of working with the larger communities. Uh, relationship with the Jewish community is one of the the most important, I think, success I have seen. Uh, the the American Muslim Jewish Council is one of the uh, great success that AGC and ISNA have established. Uh, relationship with the Muslims community and reformed Jewish. Uh, we have studied together for whole one year we create a curriculum together. Mm. That curriculum being taught in synagogue and mosque. Uh, you have now Muslims organizations addressing many issues in the United States. And therefore, there's so many successes that I have seen in this uh, 30 years or so being in the United States. I have to remember also Muslim community very small at the time when I came to the United States. For example, in this area, there's only two mosques. Mm. Now, now, at least about 30 mosques. Wow. Large mosques. Therefore, Muslim community have grown also. Um, Muslim schools, mosques, organization, uh, all of this have seen, I've seen more of it in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And what are the most pressing challenges that face the American Muslim community today? Uh, Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. The most challenging issue facing the Muslim American, American Muslims, in the United States, is the anti-Muslim sentiment, mm -hmm. bigotry against Muslims, misunderstanding of Islam and Muslims, bullying of our children in public school. Uh, Muslims being used in every political season as a part of the rhetoric, you know, fear-mongering, uh, 
those those are the challenges that face American Muslims. Yeah, you know it's it's very interesting. I in in my head, I I could sub in the word American Jews for for American Muslims and, and everything that that you just said as well. But but I, I also think you know what's interesting is that over the past couple of years, there's been this sense of anti-Semitism spiking uh, in in America, and probably a, a rabbi sitting in your chair or or a Jewish leader of you know a secular Jewish leader sitting in your chair would would say something similar to what you just said about the challenges facing Jews in 2019. But if we had asked them, say in 2015. They probably might have talked more about assimilation of the younger generations, about intermarriage, you know, Jews marrying non-Jews and, and what happens to the children and the grandchildren, would they still be Jewish? And and that those were kind of the main concerns that were preoccupying Jewish leaders uh, up until, you know, a few years ago. Are, are those concerns in the Muslim community Oh, as well? absolutely. Uh, because I thought it was asking about one challenge. Oh. There's so <laughs> many challenges. <laughs> Right. I, I guess I guess the existential challenge, the physical threat, the threat of violence, that, of course, has to be the, yes, the most significant it, it, challenge. Yeah, there's, there's uh, external and internal mm-hmm. uh, challenges. One of them is to how to get young people continue the legacy of their parents in yeah. sustaining mosques. Yeah. Like most of this mosque in America built by old generations, yeah. so doctors, engineers, and so forth, how to get young people interested in the mosque. You know, there's a movement among some young people who created called an mosque, like outside of the mosque, mm. a third space, they call it. Uh, the, the challenge also is the issue of identity, what it means to be an American Muslim, uh, how to balance uh, traditions with modernity, uh, modern issues and, and modernity in general. The challenge of the, um, what I call them, the social norms. How do you accept and adopt the American social norms. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, challenge the narrative and the rhetoric and the discourse that not being inclusive enough in the Muslim community? Mm-hmm. How do you accept the others in the largest sense? All of these are issues are challenging the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. But you see, this is the identity in the making. Um, you have you know, diverse Muslim community now um, in every way you you can think of. Uh, And how can a mosque become inclusive for someone who says, I identify myself as such, such, according to American uh, social fabric, and to be included in the mosque? That is one of the challenges. The other challenge, I think, is the coming of new immigrants all the time, refugees and so forth, because as you think that you got it and things is moving, new wave come in and you have to readjust yourself to them and to accommodate them, of course. And therefore, you have to integrate that group of people into the larger, into the Muslim community first and then in America and then to the larger community. Um, and we have seen a wave of refugees in the past 20 years. Uh, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Syria, from Somalia. Uh, All of those people need help from the Muslim community, and they need to be welcomed and integrated. And you have generation gap also. That's one of the issues. Generation gap is uh, one of the great challenges to the Muslim community. How do you create an environment where generations are talking to one another uh, the uh, the new arrival uh, to United States and their children mm-hmm. who grew up in America. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- those are the challenges for the Muslim community. Yeah, and, and I know that, again, I'm going to make the analogy to Judaism. Jewish immigrants to America from 
Africa or from the Middle East or from Israel or from Europe um, or different places in Europe will all bring different traditions with them. And and it creates quite a patchwork. I would imagine the same is true of Muslim immigrants uh, coming to this country. Uh, Absolutely. One of the challenges for an imam in America, the imam has to be able to lead a community that come from different cultural backgrounds and different ethnicities and different perspective of Islam. For I'm an imam of a mosque, we have Shia, Sunni, praying in the same mosque. You have people who are Maliki, which is a school of thought in North Africa, and Hanafi, which is a school of thought in South Asia, praying in the same mosque. You have a traditionalist who believe that women should be praying in a separate room, and you have... Uh, you know, people have different understanding that, you know, it is not the way it used to be in that culture. We have to have women praying in the same room. Mm. You have uh, youth that who ask for a basketball court in the mosque, <laughs> and we have to provide that. You will never see a mosque in the Middle East where the basketball court in the middle of the mosque. <laughs> Actually, when we built it, at, when, we, when we built the mosque, the first thing we built was the basketball court, and we use it for prayer. You will not see in the Middle East a branch of a mosque in a synagogue. We have two of our branches of Adam Center that are in synagogues, mm-hmm. one in Reston, one in Ashburn. And many, mos- many Muslims on Friday said, where did you pray? So I prayed in the synagogue. <laughs> you will not say I prayed in Adam branch of Reston. They identify the branch as a synagogue. Huh. That's unique. Yeah. That's very unique. Now, one of our branches is in the church in D.C., across the street from the White House, actually. Therefore, this, this is a unique experience, you know. Um, therefore, you need to uh, create a kind of understanding or orientation, I may say, to the new arrival of the new understanding of what Islam look like. That's why... Um, one of the scholars have said, uh, Muslim scholars in America, have said that Islam, like a, a river, have a clear water, but it runs on different land. Mm. It takes the colors and the shape of the land that it runs on. And Islam in China looks Chinese. Islam in America has to look American. Mm. And for many people coming from different parts of the world, they want to keep their cultural Islam, but they get <laughs> they get surprised by, by the children who said, I don't identify myself 100% African uh, in terms of culture or uh, Middle Eastern or Arabs. I identify myself as an American Muslim, which is the mix of Iraqi culture, Iraqi culture, Sudanese culture, you know, South Asian culture. That make America Muslim culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, a few minutes ago, you mentioned um, the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, or, or MJAC, uh, which uh, AJC and, and the Islamic Society of North America convened together. We're, we're very proud of being a part of that. What has the council been doing, and what do you hope that it will be able to achieve? Uh, the council been working on many fronts. One of them is to address the issue of hate and bigotry in America. Therefore, they introduce legislations and uh, to Congress and worked on it, and it passed, thank God. Uh, It's working in building understanding between both communities 
by having councils in major cities because you want to, to the council to be grassroots movement. Um, the council also um, addressing or working on uh, the issue of anti-Semitism in the Muslim community and Islamophobia in Jewish community. Because in order for us to challenge others regarding those two issues, we have to challenge our own communities. Therefore, we're creating kind of, a, we're celebrating also a achievement of the Jewish community and Muslim community in America. Well, it's, uh, it's important for all of us to look to our both communities, our partners, in many ways. Unfortunately, unfortunately, recent incidents and tragedies from Pittsburgh to California to New Zealand to Sri Lanka created more urgency for the both communities to work together, to stand together, to uh, support one another, and to create an environment where bigotry and hate has no place in our both communities. You know, I, I worried about my children a lot. And uh, when people ask me why you are, uh, you know, you are an imam, why you have to care about all of this national initiative and just, you know, teach your classes and bury the dead and officiate weddings. I do that as well. But trust me, I think American Muslim community and the Jewish American community, they need to understand that the decision we make today will impact generations to come. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that series of tragedies. I, I couldn't help but notice the way that they brought the communities together. You know, I, I heard from Muslim friends of mine after Pittsburgh, and personally I attended, um, you know, Muslim prayer for the first time in years, for the first time since I was in college, after the Christchurch massacre. A cynic might say, though, that, you know, even if you add up all of the Muslims in America and all of the Jews in America, that totals to a whopping, you know, 3%, 4% of, of American society, something like that. What what can we possibly achieve, even even working together? I mean, what what can our two tiny communities do? Uh, that could have been said the same thing to African-American when they were fighting hmm. for civil rights and, and uh, liberty. And could be said the same thing for people fighting against slavery. You have to remember there's a, a lot of people in this beautiful country who identify themselves as people who are standing for justice against bigotry and hate. Yeah. And they will join the Jewish community and the Muslim community and other minorities to stand together with them. You have to remember it's a Jewish community who walked the walk with African Americans holding the Torah, defending this uh, basic rights, the same thing we can do today. Uh, that's why I'm optimistic. They have done it before. We can do it again. Um, you remember there's a guy who was walking the beach and sees starfish. You know that story? <laughs> and he throw them back to the ocean. And a man comes to him and says, you're crazy. There's so many of them here. What difference do you make with this? You know, he's throwing all of the starfish. He held one in his hand, and he said, it make a difference in this fish life, and he threw it back in the ocean. We can um, make baby steps, but it will impact 
the future of this country. Yeah, I, I, I love that appeal to all people of, of good conscience to, to mm-hmm. take part mm-hmm. in, in this work. Um, another challenge maybe that would exist is, you know, <laughs> it, it's not so far-fetched to imagine that the Jewish community and the Muslim community might not be united, right? There are many things in the past there that have kind of conspired to drive our communities apart. Certainly today, I would imagine that when you're sitting at an MJAC meeting, um, at a meeting of, of the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, it's probably the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that is like the elephant in the room, that a good day is when it doesn't come up. And if it comes up, that could be a, a big problem. How do you navigate that? You know, uh, it's very interesting that people in America, uh, Muslims or Jews, sometimes identify their relationship or they want to relate to one another only about Middle Eastern issues. But listen, I have neighborhood Jews. They care about the public school system. I care about public school system. They care about the safety of their both communities and so forth. There's so much things we can work on in America. For God's sake, that our mosque and synagogue been 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 targeted. We lost life yeah. in America. Yeah. We are not be able to resolve the Middle East issues ourselves here. We stand for peace. Uh, we pray for peace. We promote peace, whether here or, or, or in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But what is most important to me is to care about things I can have influence over. I have concern, but, you know, peace around the world, especially in the Holy Land. But what area of my confluence? I wanted to make sure the synagogue in my neighborhood, no one attacked that synagogue. Yeah. I want to make sure that my brothers and sisters from the Jewish community have freedom to practice religion in America. I want to make sure anti-Semitism to be addressed and to be no more in the United States. I care about my children not to be bullied in school and our must not be targeted. Those are the area of my influence. But if I try to influence the whole world at the same time that I, my neighborhood is on fire, I'm, I'm really wrong. I, I, will, I will waste my energy onto that. And I think that um, both communities, I have not met a Jewish person or a Muslim person that I work with. They don't believe that they want the best of both communities, even in the Holy Land. Uh, Isna, for example, adopted for a long time the issue of two-state solution. Mm-hmm. And we condemn terrorism, whatever it may be. Yeah. Whether committed by Muslims or Christians or Jews and anti-Semitism in all shape or forms. Therefore, it's very important for both communities also to listen to each other's narrative. That's very important. You know, when I went to the Holocaust site, when the Ashworths, when I went to Poland and I walked in that land and I have seen what happened to the Jewish community, it has transformed me and many people in a way that is not possible for a person to get out of that experience and to be the same. Yeah, I, I want to come to that in just a moment. You know, just to put a pin in, in what we were saying and what you were saying about how much we have to work on together here yeah, in this yeah, country. Yeah. You know, I, I remember talking once with a colleague of mine who works for a different organization who, you know, 
here at HAC, I, I do some work with on campus with uh, Jewish college students. And I was talking with someone who works with Muslim college students. And I started to say to her, you know, I feel like Jewish students and Muslim students, they're and she she said, I know, I know, they're always they're always at odds, they're always fighting each other. And I said, No, it's like they're standing side by side, but there's a curtain in the middle and they just don't realize it. And you just have to pull back the curtain, right? To realize that there are so many issues that we are aligned on that we can be working together on. And I think that that, that is kind of a, a principle that underlines uh, the, the purpose of, of MJAC. Yes. Um, I, I, I want to ask you, though, Imam Majid, as, as you started to say, you did something remarkable in, in 2010 um, when you were part of a groundbreaking group of imams who traveled to Auschwitz to the infamous Nazi death camp in Poland. And, and you've been back a few times since. What does the history of the Holocaust mean to you? Um, the history of Holocaust mean to me that when you allow evil to grow, when you don't say no to it, at the time that when people close their eyes and say it does not concern me, it leads to the greatest tragedy in decent human history. Millions of people being burned alive. Children, I have seen the children's shoes, children's small bags. I have seen the ashes. I have seen the, the place where people have been burned. You cannot imagine how humanity can go to the lowest of the low. When people are being stripped from their humanity and you, when you dehumanize people to the extent you don't see them as human anymore. Holocaust history to me is that humanity that does not stop evil at the time that the spark of it or the beginning of it uh, being seen will end up with something like Holocaust. National ideology or nationalism, that when it goes wrong, when people become so arrogant, when people be brainwashed to hate the others, can lead to a disaster, to a tragedy beyond imagination. When people say no to bigotry and hate, they have to know what the end result look like. Therefore, they know has to be a solid no. When you say no, never again, you have to see what it looks like when you don't stop it. And therefore, I don't know what kind of people were they who dragged children who were screaming and women and men and elderly people and burned them. I don't know what kind of human were they. What has gone wrong with humanity? Even some people said that, you know, human project has gone wrong. You know, humanity is just lost all the essence of, of being. For this uh, Holocaust experience, for me, is that I have to spend the rest of my life to stand against bigotry and hate in all shape and forms so that nothing like this happen again. Unfortunately, Rwanda took place. Bosnia took place. Now, back to the area of influence. I have my children, all of them, learn about Holocaust. I have my daughter 
created a painting, beautiful paint, by the Holocaust and gave it to the Holocaust Museum. I took American Muslims to the Holocaust Museum here in the United States. Holocaust for me is a story that should shake always the conscience of humanity to the end of life, to the end of the world, so that will be always a group of people to say that's what it looked like to be in the face of humanity, to say to them, your word matters, stereotyping people matters, making rumors, spreading false information about community matters, because it leads to such tragedy. That's what it means to me. Imam Majid, I, I want to close with one final question. You are an American Muslim leader who has chosen to be an ally for the Jewish community. What can my listeners, primarily American Jews, what can they do to be better allies to the Muslim American community? What my advice to my fellow Americans who are Jewish, please visit a mosque in your neighborhood. Get to know a Muslim. There's so many people who write books, spread rumors about Muslim community, stereotype the Muslim community. You should not accept that. We should understand that if this group of people have mistreated the Jewish community or somebody has said something anti-Semitic, this is not all the Muslims. The same thing I say to the Muslims about the Jewish community. But my advice to my brothers and sisters from the Jewish community, please visit a mosque, get to know a Muslim. And if when you hear something about the Muslim community that is not true, or you don't know whether it's true or not, check your facts, study. Don't accept anyone who tell you anything about the Muslim community without you verifying it and learn about it. The Jewish community have been great in supporting us. They've been great alliance in studying with us at a difficult time. But I do believe that let our young people, children, youth, talk to one another so that we have communities that become free of anti-Semitism, free of Islamophobia. We have to live up to our teaching of our Torah and Holy Quran to love thy neighbor, not to bear false witnesses to our neighbor. That will be my advice. Well, thank you for sharing your teaching with us and for giving us at AJC Passport just a sliver of your 80-hour work week. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Before becoming the director of AJC's Brussels-based Transatlantic Institute in 2011, Daniel Schwamenthal worked as an editorial page writer and op-ed editor for the Wall Street Journal Europe. He is well-positioned, then, to help us analyze what went wrong at the International New York Times when the paper published a blatantly anti-Semitic cartoon last week. Now, after Daniel and I recorded our interview, AJC CEO David Harris spoke with editorial leadership at The Times, and the paper published a self-flagellating editorial and announced that it would be taking disciplinary actions against the editor responsible and also adding anti-Semitism to the unconscious bias training offered to staffers. Daniel's insights remain important and well worth listening to. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Well, pleasure to be on your show. So last Thursday, the New York Times 
published this controversial cartoon in their international edition. It depicted an apparently blind President Trump wearing a kippah, a yarmulke, a Jewish skullcap, and being led by a seeing eye dog that had the face of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and was wearing a leash, a collar with a star of David, uh, a Jewish star hanging from it. Um, The New York Times later issued an apology. Um, Before we get into an analysis of how something like this could have happened at the Times, can you tell our listeners, what did you think of the cartoon itself? Well, it is uh, a shocking example of uh, anti-Semitism. It was really the first uh, word that came to mind was Stürmer, the notorious Nazi publication during the Third Reich. And it really uh, hit all the classical anti-Semitic insults, you know, depicting the most recognizable Jew on earth uh, as a dog, uh, and then also the, the image of, of course, a Jew ultimately controlling the uh, most powerful president and that this president was, of course, and also Judaized by wearing a skull cap. It was, it was just shocking. Definitely. It's possible that the most recognizable Jew on earth is actually Jerry Seinfeld. But to your point, um, no, certainly, certainly shocking, uh, anti-Semitic. Like you, I was also reminded of Nazi propaganda. Before you came to AJC, you worked at the editorial page for the Wall Street Journal's Europe edition. Can you share some insights into the inner workings of a large publication like The Times or The Journal? Can you explain how something like this could have happened? Actually, I can't really, um, I must say. The uh, New York Times in its second statement, or maybe even already in the first statement anyway, pointed to a sort of uh, a lone gunman theory, a, a, a single editor, mid-level editor, who supposedly by him or herself identified, chose the image, downloaded it, put it on the pages, uh, and that for some reason the normal editorial oversight broke down and nobody else saw that. Uh, I find this very difficult to believe for a, a quality newspaper. Um, in, in my case, and I think, and I, I don't know exactly what the situation of the New York Times International Edition is in Paris, but obviously the Wall Street Journal's um, offices in Europe were and are also much smaller than their headquarters. And at times, I was physically the only person in the office handling the opinion pages. But thanks to a little uh, invention uh, called the Internet and email, (laughs) that didn't mean that I was the only person uh, seeing those pages before they actually went into print. There was always an opportunity for somebody in New York to proofread it. Uh, Frankly, you know... um, but perhaps even more importantly, one would uh, imagine that any half-educated person, and certainly not a New York Times um, opinion page editor, which is a prestigious position for a journalist, would not need any editorial oversight to prevent him or her from publishing you know, Sturmer-like cartoons. Do you think that it says something about the culture at the time specifically? I, I mean, there have been... You know, there have been conservative commentators who have been pointing out um, conservative commentators unaffiliated with The Times who have been pointing out that this speaks to a, a culture at The Times that is so saturated with anti-Israel sentiment, even up to the point of, of anti-Semitism, that they don't even notice 
that this is something anti-Semitic. Brett Stevens, uh, who's a conservative columnist actually writing for The Times, had a slightly uh, a slightly different take than that. You know, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. What does this tell us about The Times? I think in this context, uh, it is also worth pointing out that if we go back to their explanation of this lone editor who made the decision, even if it were true, what I find almost more alarming is the fact that then after the scandal erupted and thousands of people complained and numerous newspapers wrote about it, it took then the senior management of the New York Times three full long days before it uttered the word sorry and unequivocally identified this cartoon as anti-Semitic. And, and that I find almost more troubling than the question of whether there was one or maybe five mid-level editors involved in the original decision. It's almost as if the people who were supposed to exercise oversight in the first place actually could need some guidance themselves. It's then after the fact, after the cartoon had been published, they still deliberated apparently for three days. Is this uh, anti-Semitic or not? Do we need to apologize or not? I think that also uh, speaks to a much more structural problem rather than just, uh, you know, a, a mishap, an error of judgment um, and to force. But, but there is, of course, and, and, and I guess that's what you were also um, referring to, uh, a, a very troubling track record of, of the New York Times, uh, uh, particularly when it comes to its um, coverage of, of, of Israel. Uh, but even before, when we uh, look at Jewish affairs in general, it is a well-known sad fact and a blemish on this newspaper's record, that, which it also uh, later admitted, that it underplayed, underreported the Holocaust. Uh, and then it followed up this cardinal sin with decades of really virulently anti-Israeli coverage. Uh, that really betrays a bias against the state of Israel, um, that often overrules the most basic journalistic standards. If you just look at the same months as the uh, cartoon was published, what sort of stories also appeared in the New York Times? There was an op-ed that said that Jesus was most likely Palestinian. Um, again, uh, it's, it's inconceivable that on, on, on the most, you know, cherished opinion page, real estate in the world, somebody could be invited to write something that is so obviously wrong, and then the editors didn't, didn't notice it. They had a, a story, an in-house columnist defending BDF and, and even the idea of ending Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, there was a large story about the Palestinian concerns after the elections that completely whitewashed any Palestinian responsibility in the deadlock of the peace process. And, and, and just give you one little nugget that I looked up. It contains this little gem. In the mid-2000s, 
the West Bank was embroiled in an uprising against Israeli rule, end quote. This is how the New York Times depicted the events that unfolded after 2000, after Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak made a serious peace offer for a two-state solution, which the Palestinians rejected, and then started a murderous terror assault on the Israeli civilian population. And this, they simply, you know, this passive voice was embroiled in an uprising against Israeli rule. To describe these events in these terms, that's not, that's not professional, to say the least. I mentioned before uh, that Brett Stevens, who is a regular opinion columnist with uh, with The Times, had published actually in The Times uh, a piece entitled A Despicable Cartoon in The Times. Um, I think it's a credit to The Times that they chose to, to run that piece. And I'll commend it to all of our listeners. He poses the question, imagine, for instance, if the dog on a leash in the image hadn't been the Israeli prime minister, but instead a prominent woman such as Nancy Pelosi, a person of color such as John Lewis, or a Muslim such as Ilhan Omar, would that have gone unnoticed? by either the wire service that provides the Times with images or the editor who, even if he were working in haste, selected it. And Stevens goes on to say, the question answers itself and it raises a follow-on. How have even the most blatant expressions of anti-Semitism become almost undetectable to editors who think it's part of their job to stand up to bigotry. Um, I, I think that, that that is a is a phenomenal question. I think the piece itself is phenomenal, and I would recommend it to all of our listeners. Daniel, in closing, let me ask you this. I'm a subscriber to The Times, like many New York City Jews are. I'm an avid reader of the paper, and I'll add I'm an aficionado of their crossword puzzle. What changes should I want to see from my local paper? I would really recommend... Um to the New York Times that they have a real reassessment of uh, their editorial guidelines um, and their policies. Um, because as Brett Stevens rightly said, this didn't come in a vacuum. Uh, there is a systematic problem if, as he rightly said, a newspaper whose journalists are trained to be really sensitive to uh, all sorts of minorities and prejudices would go ahead and publish something like this and not even notice it and then deliberate for three days whether there was something wrong. I think it would be good for the New York Times and it would really be to their credit if they had the magnitude to really say, okay, we will have a real overview, perhaps have an independent analyst come in. Uh, the BBC, also a very august organization in 2003, also after it was accused of anti-Israeli coverage, invited such an independent person to come in and, and, and study their coverage. Unfortunately, the BBC didn't make that report then public, but it was at least part of its were leaked, and it's, it, it said that the BBC was indeed uh, biased against Israel. And I think something like this ought to happen uh, here as well. Um, there is enough evidence for an ombudsman, for an independent uh, review of the kind of coverage uh, the New York Times carries out when it comes to Israel and, and Jewish affairs in general. Um, and based on such a real, objective, and honest reckoning to then implement the recommended and necessary changes to ensure that not just such a Stürmer-like cartoon 
uh, will never appear again uh, in their pages. That's definitely hanging the bar too low. But to have hopefully in the future a more balanced and fair and appropriate coverage of Israel and the Arab-Israel conflict. Well, Daniel, thank you for joining us and for sharing your perspective on uh, these cartoons. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Muslims, good for the Jews? Or in this case, perhaps the better question is Jews, good for the Muslims? That's one of the questions the 2019 American Muslim poll sought to answer. What it found is perhaps unsurprising when we plug our ears to the conventional wisdoms and media narratives and instead consider the people we actually know in our lives. American Jews like Muslims and American Muslims like Jews. In fact, 53% of Jewish Americans reported having positive views of Muslims, the highest among any other faith surveyed, while just 13% held negative views. Meanwhile, 45% of Muslim American respondents hold favorable views of Jews and only 10% are unfavorable. Also striking is that 76% of American Jewish respondents said that they personally knew at least one Muslim compared to only 54% of the general public. And 45% of the Jews surveyed said they are close enough with a Muslim that they would call them if they needed help. Here's where you can come in. AJC's regional offices in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut are launching an initiative this weekend called Tri-State Against Hate, encouraging Jews and Muslims to attend each other's services on Friday and Saturday. For info on participating congregations, check out the show notes or find the link on Twitter at twitter.com slash ajcglobal. The more we can do to know and support one another, the better it is for all of us. That would truly be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.